The following Knowledge at Wharton podcast is brought to you by Vanguard, offering investments designed to help individuals and institutions reach their financial goals. Visit Vanguard.com. Additional support for this podcast comes from Wharton Executive Education. For more information on Wharton's executive courses on finance, please visit executiveeducation.wharton.upenn.edu. The headlines refuse to go away. Almost every day, a new twist seems to appear in the subprime crisis drama. This week, the investment arm of the government of Abu Dhabi announced an infusion of $7.5 billion to acquire a stake of 4.9% in Citigroup, which has been slammed by enormous losses in the credit market. This announcement came on the heels of a report from the Bank of America that the subprime mess is about to get messier as interest rates reset or rise on more than $360 billion worth of adjustable rate subprime mortgages. Has the crisis run its course? Knowledge at Wharton asked that question and several more to Richard Herring, a professor of finance at Wharton and co-director of the Wharton Financial Institution Center. He spoke recently at a meeting in Rome about the darker side of securitization. Richard Herring, thanks for joining us. Let's start with the headlines. It has just been reported that the investment arm of the Abu Dhabi government is investing $7.5 billion in Citigroup, one of the banks that has been hit harder than others by the subprime mortgage crisis. How serious is Citigroup's exposure, and what will this infusion of capital accomplish? Well, this is an interesting example of the growing power of sovereign investment funds. Uh, In this case, they're going to be giving Citibank a bit of a breather from what has been uh, a growing problem that has uh, jeopardized its its position as one of the uh, better capitalized banks in the world. Citibank has been more heavily exposed to the subprime turmoil than any of the other U.S. banks. It's had more than three times as much exposure as the Bank of America and J.P. Morgan Chase, the second two largest banks combined. The exposures um, to subprime have varied from actual loans to the most highly rated slices of the collateralized debt obligations that have um, been devised to, to hold some of these loans and pieces of these loans and pieces of other collateralized debt obligations. It makes for extraordinarily complicated um, exposure because some of it's on balance sheet, some of it's off balance sheet, and some of it, quite frankly, is in dispute. People are uh, even today arguing about whether some of the CDOs that Citigroup has um, developed, in fact, should come back on the balance sheet because um, they have experienced an event which has changed their very nature. Um, The event being that Citigroup has actually uh, bought up a lot of the commercial paper and brought much of the funding back on the balance sheet. Uh, City has so far, uh, as I understand it, refuted this position by saying they're only following their contractual lead. Um, But it does raise the broader question of when is off-balance sheet really off-balance sheet? This is something that troubles the regulators because it relates very directly to reputational risk, things that uh, financial institutions feel they must do even though they may not be contractually bound to do them because they uh, need to honor their commitments in order to maintain um, their position in markets. And we've seen in a number of cases, uh, Bear Stearns in June would be a good example when they uh, 
made a loan to the hedge fund that was not contractually necessary, but they felt was essential to maintain their position in the market. And a number of banks have tried to maintain their special investment vehicles, the structured investment vehicles, and some of their um, conduits by actually replacing commercial paper funding, which is very expensive and hard to roll over, with uh, domestic funding. Citigroup, because it has been so heavily exposed and because the CDOs and SIVs have been so badly downgraded, um, and indeed they've sponsored more SIVs or structured investment vehicles uh, than any of the other banks, um, has experienced very substantial losses. And um, the losses are still not necessarily known. I would guess they're more likely to rise than to fall because much will depend on what happens to house prices and what happens to interest rates, and there's substantial uncertainty regarding both. Citigroup, uh, because of these losses, was um, losing its position as one of the best capitalized banks, uh, although it was still technically above the uh, U.S. threshold for being well capitalized. It was uncomfortably close to the margin. Uh, much closer to the margin than a bank that does its kind of business should be. So the capital injection uh, from Abu Dhabi is certainly a very welcome one and will give them some more time, some breathing room to uh, reorganize, find a new CEO, uh, perhaps develop a new strategy and work their way out of their problems. I wonder if we could turn now to the background and dimensions of the subprime crisis. Uh, you recently spoke at a meeting in Rome about the darker side of securitization. Could you walk us through how uh, the, the subprime crisis uh, overtook the banks the way it did and whether the, it seems to have run its course? It, it is a bit of a mystery. It was never that large a market. It is perhaps best to start with a definition of what the subprime mortgage is. And basically, subprime mortgages are mortgages made to uh, borrowers who couldn't ordinarily get a mortgage. They couldn't get a mortgage because they have a weak credit history. Uh, this is all done usually by credit scoring. Their so-called FICO scores are uh, lower than the usual minimum. Um, they have weak documentation of their uh, assets and past history. Um, sometimes this is stated as uh, low documentation loans or in some cases no documentation loans. And uh, people have suggested that many of them in the end became liar loans because there was no verification, in fact, of what was going on. Uh, and they, of course, have little or no equity in their house. One might ask why these loans were ever made. And the reason, I think, is that both borrowers and lenders expected the uh, increase in housing prices to continue and to make it possible to refinance these loans under normal terms um, in uh, a relatively short time. Many of these loans also had um, uh, very low uh, initial teaser rates that um, got larger in time. Uh, this was probably the most, this was certainly the most aggressive part of the market, but I think it's fair to say that pretty much across the board, underwriting standards declined during a very long period of very low interest rates and uh, very stable macroeconomic conditions. Securitization is probably the most important innovation 
in um, post-war finance. More than two-thirds of commercial cre- of consumer credit, retail credit, is in fact securitized these days, and most of these securitizations are uh, entirely sound and um, have added huge value not only to financial institutions but also to retail customers and to investors as well. The darker side, however, appeared with regard to subprime because we're beginning to look at some securitization structures that are really too clever by half. They've become very opaque. How does that happen? Well, it all begins with um, a special purpose vehicle that is designed to get assets off the balance sheets of financial institutions. These are designed to be bankruptcy remote entities. Uh, They purchase mortgages from whoever originates them. It may be a bank, but it may also be a mortgage broker. And they pool these mortgages and then issue securities against this pool of mortgages. And the securities are designed to meet the preferences of investors. One of the main driving forces behind securitization is that a number of large institutional investors in this world prefer to have very highly rated um, debt. They prefer AAA or AA credits above all, and there simply aren't that many AAA and AA issuers. Securitization seemed to um, be a way to fill that deficit by synthesizing securities that would have that kind of rating. Uh, How did they do it? How did they take a group of of assets that were not in themselves AAA and convert them into uh, AAA securities and AA securities? Well, they um, used some fairly clever structuring that um, sliced up the claims on the debt into tranches and um, subordinated several of the tranches, which would accept first loss or next to first loss. Um, They also uh, developed excess servicing requirements that could meet shortfalls. They um, over-collateralized many of the tranches and often employed monoline insurance to uh, take away residual credit risks so that the ratings agencies were satisfied that the um, tranches at the very top of all of this um, structure were indeed triple A. What do you mean by monoline insurance? Monoline insurance is a, uh, an insurer that specializes in a particular thing. In this case, the particular thing is um, guaranteeing the creditworthiness of particular um, financial obligations. They're also, incidentally, one of the entities that that one worries about as this crisis spreads, although um, there seem to be several options for recapitalizing them should should things get out of hand. The creation of this mortgage-backed security or asset-backed security works well for those who want AAA tranches. Unfortunately, it relies on creating a lot of tranches that are not investment-grade and, in fact, are substantially below. So the question is, where do you place those? Well, that's where um, things got very clever. One of the ways they got placed was to put them into collateralized debt obligations. This was an innovation that actually is um, often attributed to Michael Milken, who devised it to deal with um, junk bonds. And his argument was that if you had a well-diversified pool of junk bonds, then indeed you had um, a safer uh, stream of cash flows on any of the underlying bonds. And in fact, you could tranche it in such a way that some of those cash flow streams would be legitimately AAA. 
Well, people tried essentially the same thing with subprime mortgages. Um, the problem is that it, it, it does not appear that um, diversifying across different originators of subprime mortgages, who all essentially share the same attribute of of not being able to qualify for a normal mortgage uh, has really given them uh, sufficient diversification. But the idea is that you can put these um, subordinated tranches into pools with other kinds of assets and then develop slices or tranches against this pool that will be uh, also rated and also uh, available to sell. Um, So you end up with, um, at the very base of it, the subprime mortgages, which were originated and pooled, and um, then you had collateralized mortgage-backed securities issued against that pool and against the riskiest tranches of claims on that pool, you had um, CDOs issued, which indeed could result in other CDOs. So you had CDO squareds and you had um, synthesized CDOs as well. So you have a very elaborate structure based on assets that are pretty deep down in the chain and very, very difficult for anyone to um, evaluate directly. It's a very opaque structure, and that's part of the reason there's been such huge uncertainty. Added to that is the fact that um, banks also found another way to structure these flows that were known as um, asset-backed commercial paper conduits. And these conduits could buy these securities and issue commercial paper against them. Another variation on this theme was the structured investment vehicles, which were um, a little bit more remote from the parent uh, organization, and also ha- were actively managed. They, I think, at their height, numbered about 300 in total. They were all based on the notion that you could engage in arbitrage. Essentially, you could issue short-term paper that would be regarded as very safe, and indeed some of this was held by money market mutual funds and other entities that really do need to have very safe short-term paper. And you could invest in a group of, a pool of assets that had longer maturity or greater risk or both. This, uh, at root, is really not a very uh, surprising model. It's essentially what banks have done for years. But banks have had the advantage of a safety net behind them. And uh, these entities really do not. Uh, What we've learned is that these entities rely very heavily uh, in uh, the event of distress on their relationship with a lender who's willing to provide them with liquidity. And that's often turned out to be the sponsoring bank, bank. Although in some cases, the um, uh, sponsors were not a bank, and these have usually had more difficulty than those that were sponsored by banks. So so what regulatory issues does this crisis reveal? For example, did the disclosure regulations show how much risk extended in the financial markets? I think it's safe to say that um, the disclosure was, was really not what we needed. Um, these devices, while very clever... Um, redistribute risk, they don't eliminate risk. But there seems to be a very real danger that, at least from the perspective of some investors, they concealed risk. Uh, Many investors thought they had AAA securities that uh, were the equivalent of AAA corporate bonds, but they simply were not. 
So one of the key issues in all of this is the role of the ratings agencies. The ratings agencies have been absolutely critical to the securitization process um, because they really set the standards for tranching and um, make it possible for people to it's a sort of delegated monitoring situation where people are relying on the securities agencies to affirm the quality of the um, underlying pool of assets and to uh, evaluate the terms of the uh, tranching contracts uh, so that those who buy them um, are assured that they have something that is of sufficient credit quality. Now, the ratings agencies have a little more guarded view of their role. They view themselves as essentially publishers and argue that um, they're really protected by freedom of the press um, for the opinions they express and are not making financial guarantees or investment recommendations. And in any event, they're only talking about credit risk rather than market risk or liquidity risk. So um, there is a sense, I think, in which uh, ratings were, were uh, abused uh, and, and misused. But they have been uh, blamed quite a bit for not uh, uh, sort of blowing the whistle earlier. Is there anything that the ratings agencies could have done differently? I think there are many things the ratings agencies could have done differently. But to my mind, the root cause is less the ratings agencies than the tendency of regulators to rely on the ratings agencies for making judgments that uh, are properly part of the supervisory process. We have a number of institutions, uh, such as some uh, insurers and pension funds and some mutual funds, that can only hold paper of a certain uh, rate specified rating. And naturally, these entities all want to have a broader range of paper to buy, and so there's a lot of pressure on the ratings agencies to provide more flexible ways of, of getting access to highly rated paper. Uh, and as a result, we've seen um, what can only be described as great inflation. It's not unknown in the academic <laughs> world, but you saw great inflation in the ratings world as well. And what we have seen is that the ratings really are not consistent across instruments. Uh, corporate bonds that were rated BAA had uh, five-year default rates of 2.2% from 1983 to 2005. So that's about what you should expect if the future plays out like the past. If you looked at the collateralized debt obligations that were rated BAA, they had a 24% default, five-year default rate um, in the period over which um, we had a, a big enough sample from 93 to 2005. So they really were a very different thing. In addition, I think there's a certain amount of disingenuousness in the market as well market participants were getting substantially higher spreads on AAA-rated CDOs than they were on uh, AAA-rated corporate bonds. Now, um, they might have thought they got a special bargain, but anyone who is a sophisticated investor should know that you don't get additional return without taking extra risk. I think the ratings agencies can be faulted for using the same scale, though, for, for uh, very different kinds of uh, structures. They have also, I think, failed to warn people that these kinds of securities are inherently subject to multiple notch downgrades when things go bad. It's not like a corporate bond where you may experience a recovery. If you have a low-rated CDO tranche and um, the, CD, the um, CDO blows through it, 
that's it. You're not going to have a recovery. And that's a reason that we've seen such aggressive downgrades. And uh, the downgrades, of course, have led to the misery for those who hold them, Mm -hmm. especially those who mark to market. Uh, But there are lots of institutions in the world, and that's another reason we don't know how bad it's going to be, who are not obliged to mark to market. And we may not know who's holding them until they actually sell and experience a loss. There are big questions about whether the um, ratings agencies made assumptions about correlations that were too low and therefore led to um, overly optimistic views of how diversified these special vehicles were. And the um, asset-backed securities, I think, have also suffered from a tendency to um, use shortcuts with regard to ratings. Um, They tend to be based on the ratings of the paper they hold rather than looking through all the way down to what the actual earning asset is at the base of the chain. And that's why we've had such deferred downgrades. Essentially, before the CDO rating is reduced, the underlying asset-backed securities or mortgage-backed securities ratings have to be reduced. And that takes time and accumulates and, and things tend to compound. I guess what concerns me in this case is not that the ratings agencies made a mistake. Uh, Anybody who's lived through the Asian financial crisis or Enron or WorldCom knows that that happens from time to time. What's more worrisome in this case is that they appear to have made a mistake with regard to an entire very important category of securities. So it has uh, systemic implications that really weren't apparent when uh, only a single issuer or a very small group of issuers were involved. To my mind, I think there are a lot of of very unhelpful things that are being suggested with regard to ratings. I would not want to see um, uh, an international agency, for example, that rates the rating agencies. I think there would be a a huge improvement, however, if rather than relying on uh, shortcut letter grades, the ratings agencies simply told us what their assumption was regarding the probability of default and the loss given default. If investors had focused on these two elements, which indeed the ratings agencies have computed, rather than relying on the shortcut, which the regulators let them get away with, then uh, I think uh, it's quite possible much of this crisis could have been avoided or much of this turmoil could have been avoided. And it certainly would have been um, an example of of full disclosure that um, was informative to investors rather than pretending that, that all AAAs are created equal. How far will the crisis spread? Uh, Will the insurance industry be hit, or is a recession likely? I think the short answer is that we don't yet know. Um, One of the problems with this process, and uh, we are focusing on the downside or the darker side of securitization, uh, but there are lots of good aspects of securitization. One of the, the real advantages is that it can broadly diversify credit risks that formerly were very heavily concentrated, usually in bank portfolios. So uh, had we had a similar kind of problem 20 or 30 years ago, we would have been talking first and foremost about bank crises. Um, We may still, but it looks less likely. But the downside is that, that we're not entirely sure who bought all of these bits, and they've been sliced and diced and redistributed in some... Uh, so many complicated ways that it's very hard to to tell. 
the hope is that um, they were redistributed into the hands of institutions that were better able to manage and assess and hold the risk, hedge the risk possibly, but it's also possible that they ended up in stupider hands, and uh, only time will tell. Uh, you know, over the weekend, uh, Bank of America uh, pointed out that next year interest rates will reset or rise on more than $360 billion worth of adjustable rate subprime mortgages. What do you think the repercussions will be? Well, that is, I think, um, a- an enormous problem and casts uncertainty uh, that extends well beyond the subprime issue. Uh, it's obviously going to be very punishing to subprime borrowers because they tended to borrow at higher spreads and they're going to have bigger resets. But in fact, these new, more complex mortgage Uh, products really pervaded much of the market. And um, it may be that we're going to see um, increasing defaults, not just in subprime and so-called Alt-A mortgages, but also in some uh, more conventional mortgages. To the extent that um, these mortgages were taken out by borrowers who had considerable equity, it may not be a catastrophic consequence unless home prices start to fall uh, or continue to fall. There is some doubt about how much home prices have actually fallen. The uh, Case-Shiller indices, which um, actually have options traded on them now, show uh, quite an alarming fall, and um, they seem to continue a uh, downward path. On the other hand, uh, Ofeo, which um, is the... Uh, oversight agency has collected a broader sample for a broader uh, geographic region. It's essentially all the conforming mortgages in the U.S. And there, there is much less indication of a decline. And um, in some regards, it's a broader index because it includes all of the refinancings. And refinancings are critical because uh, that's what gives consumers buying power. So we we don't actually know um, uh, just how far house prices will fall. There's certainly areas of the country, and I think what we've learned from our colleagues in uh, the Wharton Real Estate Department is that um, there really isn't a U.S. housing market. It's really a uh, set of of uh, individual markets that are loosely linked by internal flows of, of immigration. Uh, some of these markets have clearly gotten out of hand. Las Vegas has been a problem because it had such incredible growth. Uh, there's certainly huge problems in California and Florida. And for other reasons, there's some serious issues in the Midwest where um, we have some very serious industrial declines that are, are probably um, uh, long-term. Whether this extends to a nationwide um, problem, I think, is, is as yet unclear. And what, what's your view on the outlook for the rest of the year in 2008? And what will it take for banks to survive these tough times? Well, the history of just looking, first of all, at, at, at this particular market, the history of, of this class of securities is that mortgages tend to have a period over which they have rising problems. They, you know, they all look good when they're made. And uh, what's been alarming about the subprime is that that uh, the vintage issued in 2006 and 2007 began to go into default much, much more rapidly at a much higher rate. 
Now, typically, this doesn't peak until about 30 to 36 months after the mortgage is made, which means that for mortgages that were underwritten at the peak of the uh, euphoria about home prices in 2006, 2005, and even part of 2007, there may be worse news ahead because we haven't really gone through um, the uh, period where the the peak uh, is historically apparent. Now, it may be speeded up in the case of some of these adjustable rate mortgages where um, you'll have um, the teaser rate disappearing more rapidly than it used to, but you have a number of other mortgages that uh, will simply be reset. Uh, that, of course, depends on what's happening to monetary policy and, and interest rates overall. And again, there we have um, some real uncertainty. Uh, the Fed has been remarkably expansive um, so far, but we had even today an indication by uh, the local president of the Federal Reserve, Charles Blosser, that he thought it was more likely that interest rates were going to go up than go down. So it, it's, uh, I think, uh, very, uh, very murky. But two things that can make things a lot worse are declining home prices and rising interest rates. Uh, Dick Herring, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.